how are you doing? Welcome to the first episode of a new podcast created here at the Center for Teaching Excellence. This podcast is being created to better connect our teaching community here at the college. Through it, we'll explore the instruction going on here at MTC. We'll talk to instructors from across our seven schools and their many departments. This podcast is being made to resist isolation. The pandemic drove us out of our physical classrooms and offices, but even before that, we usually teach alone. We're alone with our students and apart from other instructors. How often did we attend a colleague's classes? How often could we talk shop in a deep and sustained way, asking each other, what do you teach? How do you teach it? What could we learn from each other? This podcast is a place where you can listen to a deep, sustained conversation and hear some of those answers. We are a community college. A community college is such a distinctive thing. I see it as a complex and living ecosystem. I see it the way that Charles Darwin saw what he called a tangled bank, an intricate assembly of interconnected beings. He called the living beings he saw elaborate forms so different from each other and dependent on each other in so complex a manner. That's how I see us. We each have our own elaborate disciplines that we're experts in. We're all specialized and we are also all connected and dependent on each other as we animate our own portions of the college. But the connections between us across schools and departments are often subtle and go untended. I want this podcast to pick up those strands of the webs that should be connecting us. I want to tend to the ecology of our college that binds us in our shared mission of teaching community. In our ecosystem, I want to reveal amongst ourselves the lively minds and work being done that many of us may not even know about. I want us as instructors to better understand the work that our peers do. I want us to find a better connection between departments and trades and disciplines. I want to satisfy and create curiosity all at the same time. What do you teach? How do you teach it? How could we learn from each other? This is Instructional Ecology. My name is Claire Houle, and I'm a writer and instructional designer at the Center for Teaching Excellence at Midlands Technical College at Columbia, South Carolina. I'll be offering you connection with our teaching community as we follow the academic year together. You're hearing a lot more from me than you usually will. I want to unfold my thinking to you, give you a map of the road ahead as we begin together. All ecosystems move through the seasons of their environment. And our environment is shaped by the flow of the academic year, superimposed on the natural seasons of our region. So this podcast will attend to the seasons of our year together too. The academic year is another distinctive part of our lives. And of course, South Carolina's seasons always make themselves felt. So part of my time in the podcast will be checking in on our seasons as they change. Because in education, we are here to offer change to our students. Many instructors tell me about the many reasons the community comes to us, but at base, they're all seeking a change. 
And the academic year shifts and changes our responsibilities alongside our teaching because we all have a complex set of tasks that changes as the year waxes and wanes, changes our mission, and changes our fate. So I think it's always worth asking, how are you doing? Where are you now? What are we all doing together, even if we're separate? So for this first episode, we're beginning the new year. The new calendar year, but not a new academic year. January starts a new term, but it's different from the start of the fall term, isn't it? We're coming off of the cold weather holidays, a time when many of us eat the foods of winter, drink the libations of celebration. And now here we are, holidays past and work come again. Are we refreshed? Are we ready for a new year on the calendar? Each year, the answer can be different. Where are you this year? It's 2022, ready or not. And seasonally, the light is returning. The cold may strengthen such as it is here in the South, but the light is already longer and stronger than it was at the end of last month. The sleepiness and darkness of December are replaced with the growing brightness of January. Is the increasing light welcome or is it searing? And this is a time of return. What are you returning to? What are you doing to enliven yourself for this new term? The new semester is here, ready or not. I'm thinking of our first podcast guest in terms of return. He's been returning to a classroom for almost 50 years in an almost lifelong teaching career. MTC has instructors at all stages of experience. Some are nearing retirement after a lifetime of service. Some of us are just embarking on a new career of teaching. And many of us are in the many places in between. We'll talk to people at all of these points in teaching careers over the course of the coming podcast season. But today, We mix the newness of the year with the familiarity of long experience. Errol Alger teaches art in the School of English and Humanities. Errol has an expansive sense of time when it comes to his part of an education. We teach so many different topics and skills and knowledge here at the college. Each has distinctive parameters and assessment and outcomes. As we talk with different instructors, We'll hear a wide variance of goals for their students' learning. But today, Errol is playing a long game. While he's teaching his class with its learning outcomes, he's also aiming to alter the very way his students perceive the world around them for the rest of their lives. He also knows that this kind of shift in perspective can't be learned in one lesson. It takes time in class and time out of class to germinate if it's ever to flower. During my conversation with him, I realized that we constantly returned to what he, as their instructor, was bringing to his students every single class. So that's my question for this episode. What do we bring to our students? There's a unique answer to this in every classroom. With Errol today, you'll hear him use a lot of metaphors for what he's doing, sowing a handful of seeds that may or may not eventually grow giving students access to a deep well of experience they can draw on in times of need. He wants to open the door a little wider for them 
to help them perceive what they've never noticed before. Let's spend some time with art. My name is Errol Alger. I often write it as Errol R. Alger because I like that middle initial. I'm in the Humanities Department of the School of English and Humanities, and I've been teaching for 48 years. I've taught at Midlands Technical College for 11 of those years. I've also taught at Fayetteville State University, Piedmont Technical College in Roxboro, North Carolina, Durham City Schools in North Carolina, Guilford County Schools in Greensboro, North Carolina, the Center for Creative Arts also in Greensboro, the Columbia Museum of Art here in Columbia, South Carolina, Communities in Schools, a volunteer program here in South Carolina, Stevenson Correctional Institute on Broad River Road here in Columbia, and Tridic Technical College in Charleston. Following that and before coming to Midlands Tech, I had a school of my own for eight years called the Visual Song Fine Art School. The class I teach the most is um, art, history, and appreciation. And uh, we call that Art 101 here at MTC. The other courses that I teach are drawing, painting, and design. Uh, I'm in the humanities department. Uh, the humanities department kind of looks to the intrinsic nature of a person, I guess, and um, it's, it's about communication and creativity. How do you see what you do in the context of the School of English and Humanities? I guess my contribution is to use art as a means to promote visual awareness among my students. And what that does, it completes their experience in life. It, uh, I think we often go through life and we're only aware of a part of what is, what surrounds us. We focus on the things, the objects that we can hold and touch and experience with our senses, but what we don't see is everything in between. And my job is to help my students become aware of what's in between, and then to see that, that those in-between things, like spaces between trees, the space between shrubs, the space between buildings, uh, the, the space between a group of people, that's as necessary as the positive. And we ignore so much. And once they become aware, well, what I have helped them to do and contributed to the School of English and Humanities is um, I've done my part to increase the quality of life for my students. Um, I, I think that it just offers a more complete experience once they become aware. That's what I'm trying to do for my students. I want them to appreciate themselves as inventors of something. And I want my students to know 
that they have the capacity, they have all the raw materials of being a producer of something. When I can share some things of the life of an artist with them and help them to see perhaps some of the reasons for the need for that artist to make something and to communicate in this way with us, there are many things I'm sure that you put in front of your students that are deliberately unlovely, mm-hmm. that are difficult and unattractive. How do students mm-hmm. deal with when you show them something that is not deliberately, not a beautiful sunset? What's that mm-hmm. like? What, what do you do and what is that like for them? I think I try to get them to appreciate the person who made it. And after all, that's what I'm trying to do for my students. Then they can appreciate the art. In fact, I often tell them that the art that I most appreciate isn't for the art itself, but for who made the art. And, um, and I, I think when I can show them that an unlovely piece of art is part of a larger body, and when we see the larger body, we get more of the story. Each work is like a, a part or a clue to this mystery or this riddle that we may not ever be able to solve, but we get glimpses of truth about this person. But we have to know the person. We have to know a little bit about where they're from, what is their language, what's their personality, what are some of their life experiences that they have used as a springboard Listening to you talk now, I hear you talking about a kind of teaching that um, is very particular and not one done in every single department. It's a non-quantifiable thing you're teaching, appreciation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Um, Which has, of course, quantifiable components to it as you're testing. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to hear you talk about... um, how you approach teaching something so ineffable, you know, teaching, talking about taste and talking about uh, appreciation. That's not something that gets, gets looked at in every single discipline, or it, if it does, it's in very different ways. I am a firm believer in the fact that we're all different. There are no two people alike. And, and I put a high premium on variety. Uh, I really enjoy the differences in people. And I'm personally, even as an instructor in the classroom, I am just really enthralled and motivated by differences of opinion. I welcome my students to challenge my thinking. And sometimes, and very often, I do say, well, you know, I appreciate that statement because I might not otherwise have thought about that. And I sometimes on the spot will think through a statement and, um, and then end up by saying, you know what, you're right. We don't have to like everything that's in the book, but maybe there's one thing that we do, like something that fits our temperament, our personality, something that we recognize because of our personal experiences that nobody else has. And we're not asking for conformity, we're asking for audacity. My job is to encourage my students 
to find themselves as an individual, but not to line up and all look the same and say the same things and produce the same kind of work. I say to my students that my expectation is if I have 30 different students, I want, I'm hoping for 30 different answers. That would just thrill me. Uh, often, if I'm asking questions about a work of art, somebody will say something to the effect of, well, it could mean different things to different people. I said, well, you're right. It, it, that is very true. So if it can mean so many different things, name one thing that it means to you. This is my way of asking them to think for themselves, to commit to a logical conclusion. It doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to be popular. It doesn't even have to be substantiated. It's just their feeling, their opinion, and their right to, to express that. And to contribute that for others to hear and think about and process. I'd love to hear you say more about audacity. You're asking for audacity. What does that mean, audacity in the classroom? Uh -huh. Well, I, I guess I have to uh, look at myself and maybe one of the reasons that I'm teaching art in the first place. I just don't fit. So I'm, I'm a nonconformist and I think that that's the root of all creative people. All creative people, to some degree, would say that they uh, are a nonconformist, not because they set out to be, not because they want to cause trouble or be disagreeable, but just because that's their temperament. Um, they, I think, are inherently leaders leaders, uh, if you have too many people doing the same thing, then how is that a leader? You, the leader is somebody who does something different and dares to do something different and, and is confident in doing something different and hoping that other people will gain from your example that or some degree of confidence. I'm not asking them to be a nonconformist. I'm just asking them to think for themselves and be okay with not fitting in and not be looking for that group that accepts me or that likes me. I, I don't think that that's a reasonable goal for a, a human being in life. And to me, um, I, I have to say, I would pity the person that's comfortable in an environment or atmosphere where nobody ever makes waves. So I feel like often as we, um, as you and I are talking, I feel like you often have two agendas, in, <laughs> which is a good thing, a complex idea, mm -hmm. because I'm interested in, in how you want art to come into their lives and influence their lives as they go into the classroom. And I realize that might be in a concrete way, you know, an understanding of art, but also you're sort of suggesting that there are, are aspects of character that can be brought out in them that are to do with a better appreciation of art. So yeah, tell me about what you, how you want their experience of art outside 
the classroom to change. Well, I want it to be relevant. I want art to be relevant to my students. I want them to see that art, whether they make a conscious effort for it to happen, art is a part of their life because they're surrounded by creativity, not just drawings and paintings, but chairs and tables and lamps, hair dryers and uh, juicers and plates and um, these are industrial designs and people think about SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design, as a place for learning to draw and paint, but it's also a place to learn how to put an automobile together. And so I think part of building an appreciation for art is to recognize that it's not all fine art. There's the industrial side of it and I have people in my life uh, an uncle who was a furniture designer. I don't think he thought of himself as a designer, but uh, he took great pride in the wood selection and the, the type of legs that a chair or table had and, and telling me all about how cherry is different from walnut and so forth. I guess the, the main thing, I, I want my students to develop a sense of self-worth. I want them to find in them that there are things that can be admired and their thoughts and their imaginings have value. And to encourage them to be less timid about all of that, um, to put it down on paper, to dare to let other people see it, to dare to talk about it, and to imagine it becoming something that can be displayed or used. Um, I want them to see that they are a part of the world that they exist within and that they have a message, whether they realize it or not, that people are reading them and they themselves are a work of art. They are a product of something and it may not be all things that they would have chosen for themselves, but what are you doing with it? You're existing, you're coming to class, you are managing your experience and your history. And that, that in itself is art. All right, now, how can you express it? You can write a letter, you can create a meme, you can uh, write a poem, you can choose some colors that look nice in your living room. You can uh, make choices um, in how you arrange things on a dinner plate, uh, the colors of the food, the lighting in the home. When I can make them aware of these sorts of things, then I think that it expands their thinking and increases their confidence and an awareness and a, a realization that they have power. They have a power to influence the people around them. And in so doing, their confidence level is increased and they recognize that they really don't need other people to affirm their value. They can do it themselves. So one thing that um that you told me about that I know you do is you ask, you tell students to take what you've taught them and to teach another person 
in their community. Mm-hmm. How do you do that, and and why, why why you do that? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, first of all, anything that I can offer my students is just a handful of seeds. I'm giving them another seed and another seed, and they end up with a collection of seeds. Well, they can imagine what that seed might do once it's sown into the ground, but until they actually do it, it's not going to take root. So. Um, I do encourage them to go uh, take this and do something with it. Now, what it might be at first is just a hands-on experience, something that they're doing for me, something that can bring home a concept that I'm teaching them and helping them to have a product that they can look at and say, I did that. but then to actually teach it to someone else is to put those roots down. And when they can experience some feedback, um, then that's when what I teach can begin to flourish in them. So I try to make my classes personal. Um, There's got to be somebody at home, siblings, children, um, next door neighbors, extended family, cousins, there's somebody that you can think of uh, if I say offer a, a hands-on lesson uh, and some of them are designed so that they have to take them to someone else and get them to participate and it's a way of getting them to teach what I've taught them but so they have this experience, they meet up with somebody, they explain what it is that they've been assigned to do, and lead a person through the process of having a conversation first. And then the next thing that they're supposed to do is take that thumbnail, take that rough sketch, and make a work of art out of it that they can then later take back to the person and say this is what this is my reaction to our conversation to your hopes and dreams your desires your objectives in life and so it's building relationships but it's also building confidence and it's also for the student driving home the concept that art is communication in my mind the number of people that you're touching with your instruction is now becoming Mm -hmm. exponential right because Mm -hmm. you're teaching the students who then go out and teach and communicate Mm -hmm. so i think a lot about what is a community college what is what is the Mm -hmm. purpose if we are in the community Mm -hmm. and of the community i'd love to hear you talk about how you see over the years your instruction in the classroom, and then through this, you know, this assignment and other things, how you are reaching out into the community. Well, community is life, and life is made of people, and people are our parents, our friends, our uh, various other relatives. And so taking or sharing, communicating, with them, and that's really what I'm asking them to do. Some of your earliest teaching was with your little sister, wasn't it? You began in your family, not a formal setting, then in your own neighborhood. I didn't always consider teaching as a career or even um, art as something that I would always do, 
but it was the one thing that I felt the most confidence about. And I think that was born of other people, outsiders, who saw something in me and cared enough to bring attention to it. It was, you know, early teachers. And um, now I'm a first-year college student with a sister who's 13 years younger, and her first grade experience was my freshman experience in, in college. And it would break my heart to come home on the weekends and find her alone. Um, and there were various reasons why um, my parents were not available, and that was more the usual than, you know, it, it wasn't a rare thing for this to happen. I would go in the house and th see things that she had made for my mother for Mother's Day, trampled on the floor in pieces, and I would pick it up and preserve it. Um, and make comments to my sister about it, to build her up, to, um, if things, if I saw things put in the trash that she had made, I'd pull them out and straighten it out and say, why don't you sign, put your name on here, tell me a little bit about it, and I would write the story on the back. The whole purpose wasn't to say this is a beautiful work of art, but to make her feel good about having made it. And I didn't recognize um, any teacher in me as I was doing that, but I did recognize her need to be affirmed as a human being, to feel important, to feel loved. I think that's how we feel loved, when we feel, when we are important to someone else. And when I can get someone to, to a point where they want to make something for me, it doesn't matter if it's good or not, but I've aroused an awareness within them that there's something that they can do that has value to someone else. And I wanted to compound that experience with her, realizing that I couldn't be with her all the time. Um, I had to go back to college, which was two hours away, um, and I never knew what care she would be receiving at home. So I tried to link her with people in the neighborhood, and um, I knew of other little girls her age, and we would often gather together on the front porch. I was embarrassed for people to come inside the house for different reasons, so we just found a space outside on the front porch. And I would have various art projects that were easy to do, but it just excited them. It was getting that aha response from them, that joy. Um, and can we do another one, you know? And, and then it also gave my sister a sense of leadership. This is my house that they're coming to. This is something I can do with them later when my brother goes back to college. You say that beauty may not be the point, but the joy of making can be. That makes me think of something you told me the artist Henri Matisse said. There's always a flower for those who want to see it. I'd love for you to, to tell me that and tell me a little, give me a little context about Matisse, what he meant, and then move into mm -hmm. what that means to you. Well, first of all, I love the phrase in French, il y a des fleurs partout pour qui veut bien le bois. 
Um, and, you know, so what that literally means, there are lots of flowers and they're everywhere for anyone who wants to see them. And I guess I was, um, at first, when I first heard that, I thought, well, you know, that's kind of, you know, flowers, you know, that's just too pretty. I don't know that I like that. But then I learned more about his life and thought, my goodness, this man had a lot of determination, a lot of perseverance. Uh, and these are traits that I really admire. But what I found out about him is that, uh, well, first of all, I found out that he had had um, abdominal cancer and had some surgery that kind of left him paralyzed. And, and yet that wasn't going to be the end of all things for him. But prior to that, during the Nazi invasion of France, um, and I don't know the the total circumstances of it, but I know that his wife and daughter were taken by the German army to a concentration camp. I'm not sure, you know, where or anything, but I do know that he never saw his wife again, uh, which to me would be a devastating thing in itself. Um, his daughter was able to escape and hide out in the woods and, you know, days later was able to return. But just thinking about all the that she went through and as a father, how you would lament the pain that she experienced. But of course, you would be grateful to see her again, um, but yet without her mother. So um, with those kinds of things in his background, and I'm sure there were many others because we all have them, hurdles, of life that we have to deal with and decide that we're going to push on regardless. Uh, it just uh, resonated with me that he could say with all of that in his background that I have a choice. I can choose joy or I can be miserable. Um, and so I do say a lot to, um, well, not just my students, but it's just a, a creed, I guess, that, you know, happiness is a circumstance, but joy is a choice. And I, I, the way I explain that is that um, if we are waiting for all things to be perfect, well, is that ever going to happen? And if it does, does it last very long? And so our happiness is very fragile. But if we look deep within, at the things we appreciate about ourselves and other people. And not only that, but when, when we can decide that we have a purpose, we have a purpose and there's a service that we can provide other people to enhance their lives. When we can um, recognize all of that, then we have a resource, a deep well of things that we can value and regardless of the circumstances around us, we can still experience joy. I, I tell my students to hold on to what's good because there's plenty of bad, but let's not focus on the bad things. Let's, let's hold on to the good. And that's what keeps our feet firmly planted. And part of that as an art teacher and as an artist is to illustrate the experience. When you illustrate the experience, 
you make it more concrete for yourself. And it's a, a visual reminder of your core beliefs. Well, there are always flowers. Um, I need to be the provider of hope for my students. I have a lot of hope, but um, that's not a concept that, that everybody has or that not everyone has developed that. No, not everyone has lived long enough to have a reason to seek it. And so I find that I'm the person, the, the, the person that can provide um, a level of trust in the classroom and I can provide over the course of weeks adding up to about 14. Why do our students need someone to trust? That's another way of asking who are our students and what do they need? So tell me about students mm -hmm. and trust. Well, trust is built by consistency and being who you say you are and doing what you say you're going to do. They may not have this kind of experience in the homes that they are in, in which they're living. Maybe they're by themselves, maybe um, who knows what their situation is, but students, um, I think, appreciate consistency. They need to know that when they arrive in class, their teacher will be there. And they need to know that uh, if they do an assignment that it will be graded and it will be looked at and it there will be a response and they need to know that the individual matters to the instructor it's not a group i'm not getting lost in this mass of people i'm a person that matters to my instructor he knows my name he knows um something about me and therefore, I have value to one person. And I think that is very motivating for someone to want to show up, want to be there, um, that they need to know that punctuality is important and appreciated. You know, I don't have to scorn someone for being late, but I can thank someone for being on time. And uh, I do try to keep things positive as well as I well, speaking of being positive, I think uh, for those of us teaching, we know quite well when you we have a student who's just, you know, they're having a hard time learning what we have to teach. And then sometimes you get the moment where it comes over them and there's a big revelation. You don't always get that, but sometimes you do. And I know that you had a student who, through the work of Andrew Goldsworthy, had one of those moments. I'd love to hear mm. the story of who Andrew Goldsworthy is and what happened to the student's perception. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, let me say that over the years uh, that I've been teaching, uh, the uh, it's it's a very common thing for the makeup of my my classroom to be a good number of people who resent being there and they show it in their body language. They don't make a secret of it. So I um, see their resentment. I hear their uh, skepticism. Um, they want to know, well, what is it for? How does this apply to me? Why do I have to be here? And when they love, they enjoy telling me 
I just needed a credit, so I took uh, Art 101. Well, that's all right. I, I'm not going to let that be a stone that's going to dissuade me from doing what I know. I, I know something different. I know that uh, you have just challenged me. And let's see what happens. So in this one case, I had a student, and he did have a football player build, and he turned his body all the way around so that I saw most of his back most of the time that I'm lecturing. And I'm sure he was saying things here and there to students, uh, criticizing some of the comments that I made. Uh, but they were quiet enough that I could ignore it every now and then in a humorous way, I'd say, hey, I'd like to see who that is sitting here uh, in front of so-and-so or behind so-and-so, and he'd look around, and I think humor is a good way to win people over sometimes. Uh, but um, so he would uh, um, look at work, things I would put up on the screen, YouTubes, um, examples and have critical things to say about them, usually having to do with the lack of skill or the lack of complexity, um, the ease with which it appeared to have been done, couldn't have taken that much time, and therefore is worthless. Um, and so then we get to Andy Goldsworthy, and Andy Goldsworthy is a British artist. He was born in England, but he lives in Scotland now. He's just a year younger than I am. And he uh, is an environmental sculptor. He uses found materials. So if he's at a pine tree, he's going to use pine cones and pine needles. If he's uh, at a frozen lake, he's going to pull the ice off the lake and use that to make a sculpture with. If he's at a place where icicles are hanging, he'll break them off and break them into smaller pieces and rearrange them um, to make something new. Um, so he's a nature artist, um, an environmental sculptor, if you will, and he's known all over the world. He makes his living by photographing his work and having his photographs published. And he's, uh, I've lost count of the number of books. So we're looking at some of his works. And uh, for a lot of students, they say, well, this is easy art. And it's about the time that I'm asking them to do a final project. And they're asked to choose an artist that we've talked about over the course of the semester that they're inspired by. And uh, I think this guy chose Andy Goldsworthy because he thought it would be easy. And so he came to class one day, a little bit early. I'm setting up, putting things on the board. No one else is there. And he brought a photograph. And I'll admit, it took me a while to make sense of the photograph. He had to explain what it was uh, for me. And then I saw it. Uh, but he was beside himself in telling me his experience of raking his front yard, um, raking pine straw. And uh, he said, you know, it took a while. He's got a, a very large front lawn. And he said, you know, I, I was uh, thinking about this old dead tree stump there. And as I was raking around it, 
Um, I became aware of this sapling that was a good distance away. And then I thought about Andy Goldsworthy and how a lot of his art, um, you said, but I didn't believe, was uh, a timeline or a, a line that traces the course of the history of a life. And that for Andy Goldsworthy, a lot of the things that he does, especially the circular things, um, are the cycles of life. And so apparently at that moment as he's raking and he sees the dead tree and the sapling, he made that connection and he heard and for the first time believed uh, what it was that I was um, uh, conveying in the classroom. And so he began to find a way to join these two pieces. And uh, so he made a giant spiral. I mean, I'm talking about, if I lay down, I'm six feet tall, it would have at least been three of me across the, the diameter of that spiral. Um, but he joined it one end to the dead tree stump and then it spiraled, this huge spiral, spiral around to where it ended at the sapling. The thing that impressed me once I was able to read the photograph that he was showing me, I said, well, how in the world did you make it so uniform? Because it was perfectly round and the spaces between each spiral was just uh, equidistant. And he, he said it to me like, well, you should know this, Mr. Alger, I got up on the roof. And I was saying, you got up on the roof to do this? You cared uh, enough about this project that you would manage your work, that you would survey your work by finding a ladder, climbing up on your roof to look down, then get back down, make adjustments, get back up on the roof, until you're satisfied enough to make a photograph. And he, he thought, well, of course. And, uh, and now this was just him sharing it with me, but I wish you could have seen him share it with the class when it was his turn to present his, um, his project. And I'm certain that it must have made a big impression on some of the students who knew him earlier in the semester as a skeptic and now saw him as a believer. So um, that, that's a, uh, a particular story that I, don't, I won't say I take great pride in it, but I'm very grateful that I could experience it. I love that story. I talked about the concept of I can do it, and that's really the theme of what I teach, I can do it. It's a confidence builder. I think it's important for students from the outset to experience um, success. I need to, I know that I'm scaffolding, they don't necessarily know that, but I need them to experience success. You mentioned that you have an assignment where you and the students write back to each other. Um, I'd love for mm -hmm. you to explain why you created that and how you do it, imagining that another instructor might say, oh, you know, that's something I could use. 
Well, this assignment, this is a, an, a, a way that I can further relate to my students. I, I, I got to a point, you know, I, I taught for a number of years and I thought, well, you know, I would just like to connect with my students on a deeper level. And the way that I thought about uh, doing that was to um, have a writing back and forth, a journaling experience where they could tell me something about passion. So I've already explained to them what the characteristics of an artist are, that, that an artist is one who has a lot of energy, and I tell them that I think what that means is they they never lack for ideas. One idea hatches three and so on. And then we talk about ingenuity and I explain to them, ingenuity means not taking no for an answer, refusing to be, to accept that, that I cannot do something. Uh, if it doesn't work the first time, the first way that I thought it would work, then don't give up but you find another way, and that's what ingenuity is. And then the third one is courage of conviction, going out on a limb, um, not being afraid to be criticized. But I tell them, let's take these and add them up. All right, we have energy, we have ingenuity, we have courage of conviction. Together, that's passion. And, and I'll tell them, I want to approach life with passion. I want to love what I do. I want to think always future. I don't want to look at my mistakes in the past. And so uh, passion is infusing life with life. It's, it's breathing life into our existence. So tell me, what does passion mean to you? What are you passionate about? And another way to look at it in this give and take journaling experience that I've instituted with my students in the Art 101 classes, the Art Appreciation, Art History and Appreciation is um, how do you serve? How do you understand service? Um, what is a service attitude? How can that be developed? Um, how does that relate to your sense of purpose? Um, what is your purpose in life? And how do you relate purpose to your passion? And, and I tell them, look, I'm not going to criticize you. This is just between you and me. There may be things you want to say to me that you'd rather no one else hear. So it just gives me that opportunity to look deep inside and let them look deep inside of me and realize that this isn't just uh, um, an institution. Uh, this is a, a place populated with people who have concerns, issues, problems, and who are, many of us, are survivors. And as survivors, we can lend a hand to other people and recognize we can be honest. You have to admit that you need help um, and there's uh, a risk in that. But when they can learn to trust someone and hopefully they can trust me, um, many of them, um, 
hopefully many have learned to trust me. Um, we'll say that this process isn't for everyone. Um, not all of my students were takers. It was maybe up to about a third of the class that would say, yes, I want to participate. Now there is an incentive with it. There's um, an increase in their grade or um, points added to a grade item um, that relates to the, the process. But it has made me love my job. It's made me feel that I have a reason for it to be here and that it isn't um, by, by no means is it for the income I earn. And for the students, it's by no means the credit they earn. Um, but we're changing each other, and not just for a semester, but for a lifetime. I'm curious, when you're journaling, especially now during the pandemic, is this a hard copy that you give back and forth? Do you use D2L? How do you share your writing? It's a hard copy. I've got a file right over here in my office. It's um, in their own handwriting, ink on paper. And I find that to be very important because I want them to see that I have taken the time to use my hand. Because, you know, handwriting has a body language too. And it can show care and compassion and interest. And I want them to witness that in me and by doing that, I invite them to do the same back. Um, please afford me the same benefit, the same luxury, because I genuinely want to read your handwriting. I want to read your compassion for whatever it is that you care about in your life, the way that you are serving. I heard from several who I didn't know were the, the main caretaker of someone who had health needs um, or people in my art class who were planning to be nurses and uh, the time that they spent with uh, one patient or another and conversations that they had and uh, the impressions that it made on them. And I think just giving them the opportunity to tell someone else about it someone that they perceive is interested and cares. I think it lets them know that, hey, this choice I've made has uh, many possibilities. Yes, it might put food on my table and help me to raise my children, but it also um, is going to increase the quality of life for the people I serve. It just shows me that I don't have just people sitting in my classroom. I have souls and I have people who have real needs and real hurts and real problems to deal with. And art is, is a therapy. It's a catharsis. It's a way to deal with those things. And it's a way to find ourselves and to ground ourselves and I feel fortunate to be a person who can suggest that as a possibility and it it also requires a questioning frame of mind and it requires from the outset the realization that there may not be any answers in fact the answers are not the important thing it's how many 
questions can we collect? How, how can we broaden or lengthen our list of questions that cause us to look more closely and see more things than we ever saw before? I want to build my students' sense of self-worth. I want them to see art as a catharsis, art as an affirmation, art as the root of pride of ownership, art as a reckoning and an establishment of one's own person, art as a primal pathway to and from the heart of one's identity, art as a means of becoming that cannot be quelled no matter the circumstances nor the degree of opposition. And uh, recognizing that what we're doing is broadening the spectrum. It, it doesn't have to mean one thing. It can mean many things. And by listening to what other people have to say about it can be something that we consider and open the window just a little wider, open the door just a little wider to what this is all about. And in the process, they're recognizing that it's not just to decorate a room. It wasn't a painting to match someone's living room or their, their sofa, to put over their sofa. It, it wasn't uh, something that's made to match. It's made, or let's say, not to match an exterior place, but to match the interior spirit, mind, soul of a, a per the person who created it. Has Errol opened the door a bit wider for you today? What about his stories or classroom practice or ideas has activated something in you? If you want to spend some more time in Errol's world, go to our website and the page for episode one. There you can see some images from his talk today by Matisse and Goldsworthy. You can even see an image of the work of nature art that his student made and brought in to show him with such pride and revelation. Also in our time together, Errol gave two amazing and detailed close readings of two paintings, one by Matisse and another by Vincent van Gogh. I pulled those stories aside and put them into a small bonus episode that you can enjoy if you'd like to have a very different perspective on these two famous painters. That little episode is also on the website, on the page for episode one. The first episode page also has a summary of the journaling activity he described in case you'd like to adapt it for your purposes. I hope you'll go check it out and explore a little more. I hope you've enjoyed spending some time in art today and with Errol Alger. He's just one of many voices we'll hear on instructional ecology. He is one being in the complex tangle of the humanities and one voice in the larger chorus of teaching here at the college. Thanks for spending time with us. I hope you'll join us for our next episode out in February as the year moves us forward. 